This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh-brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to HRT. I'm your host, Bethany Adams. I love HRT, but truth be told, I am a coffee drinker. All right, on this episode of HRT, it is our final episode in our three-part mini-series on diversity and inclusion. In our first episode of this series, we discussed diversity and inclusion research broadly. In our last episode, we touched on an important area of diversity research, which is our LGBTQ population and how to create more inclusive organizations for those employees. And on today's episode, we're going to think a little differently about how we define diversity and inclusion. Most typically, we define and think of diversity through the primary dimensions of diversity, age, race, religion, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, and physical ability. However, diversity comes in many dimensions. There are secondary dimensions, such as education, marital status, parental status, military experience, geographic location, income level, and we could even split it further into different workplace dimensions like department, job level, tenure, work location. All of these dimensions, and there are more, can have different impacts on employees and organizations. As an aside, I believe that we focus on the primary dimensions of diversity most often in research because these are groups that are traditionally marginalized and not considered in organizational policy. So changing those policies and benefits through research to provide these groups with the same inclusion that majority groups are offered is not only an important organizational initiative, it's an important human initiative. All right, sorry, I'll step off my soapbox. So on today's episode, I'm going to ask you to think about some of those secondary dimensions of diversity, specifically the identity of couples and family units and how they make decisions together. And I'm not talking about gender or sexual identity as a part of that couple makeup today, but rather how you see yourself within a family unit providing care for your family. Are you the breadwinner and provide care through income to support your family? Or are you the caregiver providing nurture to support your family? Traditional gender stereotypes may impact how you identify within your family, but today we know that women can be breadwinners, men can be caregivers, and the truth to this is that your identity is how you identify and see these roles and how you provide for your family. So it's not that you can't do both, um, and you may see both of these roles as being equally important to your family. So let's dive into today's episode. I sat down with Dr. Heather Cluley. Heather is a visiting professor at Villanova University in the graduate programs in human resource development, and her research has focused on couples and decision-making. And I asked Heather to tell us a little bit about her research. Thank you, Bethany. I study couples and dual income couples and how they make day-to-day work family decisions. So not the big decisions about careers, 
there is a little bit of research on how that involves couple level discussions, especially for international relocations or big decisions that involve moving a family. But otherwise, yes, we consider work family decision making from the individual lens. And the reality is, if you're in a couple, those big decisions involve discussions and negotiations in dual income couples because they affect each person's career. My idea was to also look at the little day-to-day decisions mm-hmm. about who picks up a kid from daycare or if a kid is sick or from school, mm. who does the drop-offs and pickups, because your work, the schedule you keep, depends on those other things outside of work. Absolutely. So I did have some mostly straight couples and some gay couples, but that didn't make a difference in how things were done. Right. It really had to do with deeper level identities. Right. So... If you take the individual, people can see themselves in their family role. And by the way, these were all couples with children. So they can see themselves in their family role as a caregiver. So this is interpreting your role and wanting to carry it out in a way that you actually provide care to your family members. Hmm. Another way to interpret the family role is to be a provider and a role model. Mm -hmm. So that links to your work role. Going to work is acting in your family role. Right. Other people see themselves as egalitarian. They do both. It's my job for my family to provide for them, but it's also my job as a family member to take care of my family members. So if you take these three types of ways of interpreting your role at the individual level and you pair them, Hmm. then you end up with five different types of couples. So these five different types of couples that Heather is referring to come from the identities of each member of the couple paired with their partner. This family identity-based typology is from the research of Masterson and Hubler, and I thought it would be helpful for you to understand those five couple types before we discuss how Heather studied them. But keep in mind with each identity, it doesn't mean that you don't also do the other role. Your role identity within your family comes from what you see as your primary role within the family. I might earn an income, maybe even the largest income in my family, but I could still see my primary role within my family as the caregiver nurturer. Or I might take on the largest portion of nurturing activities within my family, but I could strongly identify as being the provider as most important to who I am and how I identify within my family. And you could identify as both being equally as important to your identity within your family role. So the five types. The first type is called neo-traditional, and it is just that, a typical provider father paired with a caregiving mother. The second type is the non-traditional, although I think we're seeing this type more often in society today, and that is the provider mother with the caregiver or nurturer father. The third type is called dual career couples, where both parents identify as providers first. These couples may have others outside of the couple, nannies, grandparents, who provide most of the care or nurturing for the children for that couple. Then we have the egalitarian couples. And as I mentioned earlier, you could have a relationship in which both parents see themselves in both roles. In these types of relationships, the couple splits the work evenly, depending upon the needs at that time to balance work and family between themselves. 
And finally, we have the family first couples. These couples both identify as caregivers and nurturers. These couples tend to seek out organizations that offer family-friendly work arrangements so that both spouses can prioritize caregiving. So as you can see, based on how you identify your role within your family, there could be several implications on the way you would interact and make decisions about the work that you choose. And Heather studied dual income families. So regardless of how they identified their family role, both members of the couple had to work and balance work responsibilities. So I asked Heather to elaborate on how the larger environment impacts how these different types of families make decisions. So organizations are embedded within communities, within states, within nations, and those nations have policies and cultures around work and family issues. Right. Right. So in the United States, we don't have time off for parental leave, for example. Right. So some couples organizations are, do. Some organizations do. So even at a higher level, what organizations do will depend on what they do that in the sense. national yep. culture. At the organizational level, flexibility policies are the main issue here. Mm-hmm. There's no one-size-fits-all for organizational flexibility, but couples, depending on how they see themselves, were looking for particular companies to work for. For example, family-first couples, members of these couples, or or caregiver identity people, were looking for much more flexibility and maybe part-time work. Whereas more career-oriented people, the provider role models, are looking for maybe more stability and long-term prospects for promotion in their organizations, but less concerned about work-family policies around flexibility. Yeah, you know, I think what's so interesting about this research is people in organizations, we hire individuals. We don't think about, one, their identity of how they see themselves as a caregiver or family first. We don't think about who they're coupled with and the identity of their partner. We think about what are your credentials and are you capable of doing this job and are you a fit with the team or the organization? And so it's interesting because you talked about in your study that employers could strive for fit that's more layered than person job or person organization by adopting this idea of kind of a work home perspective that takes into account the couples. So what would that look like in an organization? How could we think about doing that? So the work-home perspective is really the idea about interdependency between work and home life. There's no big wall around work. There's no separation, really. And most of us are taking work home now on our All electronic devices. Time. right? Yes. So there really is no separation between work and family. Uh, it's an illusion that we've sort of sustained over time. But the work-home perspective, this was Ellen Kosick and Jeff Greenhouse they talked about this interdependency between work and sort of saying we need to own up to it. We need to put policies and practices in place that allow not just work to overflow into family time, but family to also be an important thing that comes into play sometimes during work time. Mm, Yeah. And this can be very simple policies like allowing people to set different start and end times to their day. Hmm. Not everybody can be or should be nine to five. Again, this is going to depend on the organization and on the department, on the roles that people are playing. There are many, many ways to approach the flexibility issue, and there's no one-size-fits-all practice, but really looking at what flexibilities can we allow our employees that do have a life outside of work and, and may have spouses that have complicated schedules 
just giving them that flexibility allows them to come to work completely with their head on, not worrying about how they're going to get somebody to pick up their kid after school right? because there's that lag time of 30 minutes or a 45-minute commute when they really only right. have 30 minutes to do daycare it. Daycare closes at this time and I have to get there by this time or exactly so you know one of the things that you talked about as an application for organizations because I think a lot of organizations think they do this already they think well we are flexible with our time off we do say instead of working nine to five you can work eight to four you can work you know they think that they do this and you mentioned that instead of having these sort of pre-scripted decisions about flexibility already determined by the organization and it's you know pick one of three options that organizations should be sort of allow the individuals within their organization to come up with the solution based on whatever their identity is and the choices what would that look like there are several things here that are important one is that organizations have policies in place very well designed beautiful policies for work-life flexibility But often supervisor level or manager level decision makers are the gatekeepers for these policies Mm, and they often don't allow them to be used. Mm. So having the policies and letting them be used are two different things. So in organizations, training and convincing managers that this can be done exactly is one issue. Another issue is that from my conversations with organizational employees is that they could work it out between themselves as team members to make sure there was coverage for service that needed to be provided or work that needed to be done. It doesn't take a lot of effort for them to work it out amongst themselves if they're given the autonomy to do so. Right. So we don't need necessarily the big overarching policy. We just need to give the freedom down to allow teams and individuals to make these types of decisions. But do it in a way that also works for the organization. Yes. And the third thing I would add is is being more results-oriented. It's not about punching a time clock anymore. Yeah. Work is not like that. That's right. It's about getting the results that we are asking for. So if you're a manager, don't worry so much about what time your employees come and go. Yep. Worry about if they're getting their work done. And how can you set goals, help them set goals to get their work done and know what it looks like to have a result. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a mindset shift. And it's really, to your point, more about the training um, and helping people understand why this is important and how they're going to benefit, how the organization's going to benefit by doing it, than it is setting some overarching different type of policy. It really is. And I make a point about educating couples about their identities because... I don't think that they understand fully what's at stake in terms of these different types of couples and how they hold these identities. What What is their priorities and what's important to them? The assumption is if you're a caregiver, then you should stay at home with your children. But the caregivers I met really loved their work and they were passionate Absolutely. about it. They just needed it to fit with their other priorities in yeah. life. So it's not about their work orientation or their lack of work ethic. It's about wanting also to have other things in their life. Yeah. I met a woman who was very provider role model oriented. Her Mm -hmm. husband was the caregiver. And she talked about her secretary and she said, I don't understand why she has to leave every day at 3.30 or 4. I need her there at 4.30 every day and she just can't be. She Mm -hmm. didn't understand that that woman probably doesn't have a caregiver husband at home to take care of her children. And even through our discussion, she, she understood that more 
she couldn't make the mind switch. Mm-hmm. So it really is about changing attitudes and about developing that empathy and that understanding. But not every manager is going to be able to come around to those conclusions. So it's an interesting point to help us understand our own identity and the choices that we've made about our priorities because no one identity is better or worse. We're all doing what we believe and what we identify as being the best choice for our family, right? If I am a provider, I'm doing it because I want to provide for my family. So it's not a lesser choice than those who want to be caregiver first. So how do we help ourselves know which choice we've made and how that impacts other types of decisions. So what what would that training look like? Yeah, I think when I talk to couples about this, they go, yeah, I really see myself right. in this. So even just showing them the five different couple types and what that derives from. So these identities are formed pretty early and they're fairly stable over time, although couple types, I believe, could probably change over the family life course. Right. We probably tend to be more work-oriented when we're younger before children, maybe revert back to that when the children leave the nest. We're really talking about the early childhood years, that this is the most important. But certainly when I've presented this to couples, they say, oh yeah, we're kind of like this and this is how we do it. But when I was interviewing couples before knowing anything about their underlying identities, they couldn't articulate what it was. They could say, you know, it's really important to me to be there for my kids right after school. I don't want them to show up and it's somebody else. Or it's really important to me that I'm the one who's making sure they get to bed on time. Or it's really important to me that my husband is the one. Right. But they couldn't say that's because I'm a caregiver mentality. Or it's really my job to be the provider, but I understand that we have this unspoken agreement that my spouse is a caregiver. Like, they couldn't articulate these things. We don't understand that deeply about our identities. It's just a feeling, a gut feeling of this job isn't working and I have to. But I don't know exactly why I feel this way. So there's usually discomfort, there's cognitive dissonance, and then there's movement. So I saw a lot of movement between jobs when they weren't working for their family identity, but people didn't say that was the the key reason. They might say I was looking for more flexibility now that I have children. But I don't think that people fully understand the depth of their values and identities at that level. And I think bringing it to the surface and talking about it, it does help them understand more and sort of pick out themselves and sort of say, okay, if those are my priorities, how do I make work and family fit for me? Right. And how do I find an organization where I can make those fit together? And in the U.S., there are lots of organizations that have great policies and great flexibilities, and there are lots that don't. So landing in the right place that works for you, but also for you and your spouse. Family, yeah. Oh, it's really fascinating. Well, you know, we don't often think about diversity in the realm that you consider in your research. So tell me a little bit about why this is a diversity issue, right? How is this related to diversity and inclusion? Yeah, so when you're studying couples' work-family decision-making, you don't necessarily think of that as the diversity officer at big corporation and what they're thinking about. What they're thinking about is surface-level diversity. So if we borrow from the research on groups and team dynamics, there's this idea of surface-level versus deep-level diversity. And surface-level diversity has to do with looking around and seeing people look different. Mm -hmm. And what the group and team dynamic research has found over time is that matters less and less. As the group gets to know each other, they realize we're all the same on the inside. With deep-level diversity, this has to do with personalities, 
identifications, values. So mm-hmm. even if you look around your group and you say, on the surface, we look a little different, but we've learned to you know, deal with our differences, eventually you get to know each other well enough to realize that you may have some very deep level differences in how you see the world. Values and what we prioritize and exactly. all of those things. Mm-hmm. So imagine a group who works, not virtually, but together as a team, but different team members have different needs in terms of scheduling Mm -hmm. because their priorities to their family. Mm -hmm. This can be a deep level difference that if unexplored and unarticulated can cause serious problems in the group. People make assumptions about social loafing or not getting the job done or not being on track with timing. A caregiver may simply want to be home between 3.30 and 6 to get all that family work done, but then be perfectly happy to work in the evening. That secretary that's leaving at 3.30, but totally willing to work hard or come in early for the job, but the boss with a different value doesn't quite understand the choice or the priority. Exactly. And that leads to judgments and assumptions that are unfair. I didn't find in my research that people's commitment to work was any different. I met people with the mindset of being providers and role models who said, but I'm just the pocketbook. I go to work because I know that that's important for my family. They weren't as committed to their jobs as a woman who worked 10 hours a week, um, self-employed, who was absolutely the caregiver in her family, but very, very passionate about the work that she did. Mm. So I didn't find that there was such a tight connection between being committed to work and passionate about work and your family identity. It just mattered in how you decided to allocate your time. But we certainly make judgments about our coworkers, about the people around us based on the amount of time they're willing to put into a job or what we see as the time they're putting into a job. Um, And to your point, right, those are these deep-rooted differences in what we prioritize or maybe misjudgments in how we think about how people are valuing something. Absolutely. And we are losing out on some really important talent, some very well-educated, experienced people who maybe they can't work full-time right now. This is a life phase issue. Right. Uh, Or we look at their resume and we say, but for the last while, you haven't done X, Y, and Z. Right. But the truth is, their priorities being what they are at home doesn't change their professionalism or their commitment or their talent. Right. It just means they have to allocate their time differently at certain times of their life. Right. And, you know, I do think that we are seeing, you know, there are organizations that have some really cool things that they're doing when it comes to talent acquisition and maintaining relationships with talent long after that talent has left their organization, recognizing that, hey, maybe this isn't the right life moment for you to be in our organization, but you're amazingly talented. And when it is, we hope that you'll maintain this positive feeling about our organization and want to come back and contribute. I think that those are the types of attitudes we have to develop in organizations, but it's really tough because we're so focused on the here and now and what can you produce and do for me now? We're not thinking about you might be great talent in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in HR, we're maybe better to put that mindset on, but certainly, you know, immediate supervisors have immediate needs and they're looking at their forecast for the short while, not even a year out, definitely not five years out. So those are great programs to keep people 
in mind for later opportunities because they don't lose their talent and their skills. That's right. Just because they're out of the workforce or partially out of the workforce or working on something more flexible right. in the time being. They might come back to you with a completely new and even elevated ability to do more for your organization because of the time that they were able to focus on something else. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sitting with us. And we look forward to seeing where your research goes. Thank you, Bethany. All right, this wraps up today's episode of HRT and our mini-series on diversity and inclusion. For those of you itching for more resources on these topics, I would encourage you to reach out and connect with each of the Villanova professors that I've interviewed. The Villanova HRD blog has all the links to the research articles that we've discussed and ways to connect with each researcher. Taking you back to Quinetta's episode, there is a need for more collaboration between academic researchers and practitioners. So if you are interested in getting involved in their research or have a need in your organization for this type of work, I think I can speak for Quinetta, Christian, and Heather when I say don't hesitate to reach out to talk to them about opportunities to collaborate. All right, our next episode will shift gears from diversity and inclusion to talk about organizational culture and values with Jack Templin. Jack is the Chief Programs Officer and President of Industrial Divisions at AD, which is Affiliated Distributors. And if you're thinking that Chief Programs Officer and President of Industrial Divisions doesn't sound like an HR title, you would be right. Jack is a senior business leader at AD, and on our next episode, you are going to hear how HR topics like culture and organizational values resonate with a non-HR business leader and how they support and guide the business's strategy. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Remember, whatever you are drinking, tea, coffee, or something a little bit stronger. I hope it leads you to new ideas that will help make work better for all of us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to HRT. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you're brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University and for all the links and notes from today's episode, visit the Villanova HRD blog at villanovahrd.com.